Good morning, church. I don't know about you, but I, um, I don't suggest we all do this, at least not at the same time, but sometimes I'll just stop singing and just listen. I get so encouraged when I hear one voice saying, I rejoice in Lord my Redeemer, greatest treasure of my soul. I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied. Sometimes it's nice to just hear the whole body in one voice say that together. And uh, I was able to do that this morning. It was quite encouraging. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles. And uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, there may be one in front of you. Uh, and if there isn't, there's also a handout uh, back by the offering box back there uh, that has all the passages today on the back of that handout. So either way, you should be able to follow along. Uh, we are in Luke chapter 14. We are looking at verses 15 through uh, 24 this morning. While you're turning there, I'm going to talk to some of the parents in the room. All right. So as a parent, okay, as a parent, you, you might have some moments where you get to sit down with your kids, kind of look them in the eye, and impart your wisdom to them. Right? We all, sometimes as a parent, you look forward to these moments, right? these teachable moments where you get to kind of give them all of the information and wisdom and biblical knowledge that you've accumulated over the years. And so... You know, whether you're, whether you're a parent or maybe you're just a child or you're, you have parents, you've been on one, or, one or side of this conversation at one point or another, right? A time of correction, a time of loving rebuke. Of course, parents, have, have you ever, you might remember a moment where this has happened and you've given your kids what you would consider one of the greatest, most magnificent, wisest, most spirit-filled corrections of all time. I mean, you know that you nailed every single point of this conversation, right? You were preaching the gospel to them. You were aiming right at their heart. Every word you were saying was like on point. You were thinking, man, I nailed it. I know. I know for sure that if they got anything at all from this conversation, their life's going to be changed forever, only to quickly find out through the blank look on their stare that they got nothing. They may even say something that is completely different subject from what you were talking about. What do you, what do you typically do in that moment? Maybe you give up. Maybe, maybe you try again. Maybe you kind of put your hand on their face gently and just, you know, Make better eye contact, and you say it maybe a little bit more direct this time, right? A little less finesse, a little more in your face. You know, as we try to lead our children towards this idea of self-realization. This is kind of where we find ourselves here in chapter 14 of Luke. We find ourselves with Jesus, the greatest teacher of all time, giving a very loving rebuke, right, to the, to the Jewish leadership of the time, only for it to land with blank faces, hard hearts, thorny hearts. In fact, he gave them an opportunity to hear the gospel, to hear the, hear the truth they needed to hear, to be broken over their sin, 
And of course, they would not hear it. And so today, beginning in verse uh, 16, Jesus will do it again. He'll say it again. This time, he's going to be much more direct. He's going to be much more direct. He will leave no possible confusion that unless you repent of your self-exalting, self-worshipping, self-glorifying person or heart, you will have no fellowship with God. He will leave no confusion. So let us pray that we would not be like them. As we hear God's word this morning, we hear the words of our Lord Jesus, that we would seek to have selfish ambition removed from our hearts. That we would seek the lost in the room today to be saved. And that we would seek to be like Christ as he sought the lost here. Let's pray as we go to God's word this morning and ask God to do these things in us today. Father, it's a glorious thing to come to you, to know, God, that we don't have to ask you to come near, for you are omnipresent. You are always present. You are here with us, and you are listening, and you are working Lord, we believe that you desire to make change in us. We believe, God, that you desire to work today through the preaching of your truth, that you would change minds, change the way we see the world, change the way we view ourselves, change the way we view sin, and Lord, change the way we view you that we would see you, God, as you are, holy, high, lifted up, glorious. We ask, God, that you would do that today. We ask, God, that you, you would be glorified this morning in all of our hearts and minds. Amen. Should be in uh, chapter 14 by now, and we're starting in verse 15, where uh, we left off last week. It says, when, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, being Jesus, said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And then another one said, I have married a wife, and for that I... For that reason, I cannot come. And so the slave came back, and he reported this to the master. And then the head of the household became angry. And he said to the slave, go out at once into the streets, lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, master, what you have what you've commanded has been done. And yet still there is room. 
And the master said to the slave, hey, go out into the highways then, along the hedge, and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my dinner. Let everyone who has ears to hear, let them hear the word of our Lord this morning. Main point, main point of today's message is this, is that God commands, God commands that we desire fellowship with him above all things. God commands that we desire, this is a heart thing, fellowship with him above all things. As we get into today's text, it would be good to briefly just kind of re-examine where we're at, where Jesus is at, and kind of what the temperature of the room is, okay? He's, if you remember from last week, Jesus was invited to a luncheon. He was invited to a luncheon by one of the Sanhedrin, which is a, it's a Sanhedrin's home. He's a leader of the Pharisees, a very prominent man, and so to be invited to a luncheon like this was a pretty big deal. Of course, for Jesus, it was just a trap, but for everyone else that was there, this is what it was all about. This is what it was all about as an ancient Jew, to be invited to a social event like this. This means you were, you were coming up in the world. You were, you were doing things right if the Sanhedrin thought you something special. You know, this is something even perhaps for the modern person. You can picture it, right? We to get invited to the best lunches, to the best dinners, to the best parties, to be able to get to the best concerts and get all the free tickets or whatever from your boss, right? You get singled out by your boss at work and he invites a few of you to lunch but leaves the rest at work. You feel a little bit good about yourself. I made it. Maybe there's a promotion coming. And the reason why it was very special for them is because eating a meal, eating a meal, breaking bread in this culture was a very like uh, intimate act of fellowship, it was a very intimate act of fellowship. It was like if, I, if you invited somebody into your home to break bread, it was like calling that person family. It was like calling that person family. You were to be grafted in, so to speak, grafted in, so to speak, into that person's life. And so to be invited to eat with this elite group of, of Pharisees, it was to be a part of their life. And in this culture, it was a great honor. It was a magnificent honor for all who were there. It was, it was the way to get ahead and climb the social ladder, which was everything to them. And of course, the closer you were to the host where you sat, the greater the honor. The closer you sat. So you see everyone, if you remember from last week, Dad talked about this, that everyone was trying to get as close to the host as possible. Everyone was trying to get the very best seat. And Jesus calls them to humility. He calls them to humility, and then he calls the leaders to humility as well, if you'll remember. It was all about humility. He wasn't letting anyone getting away from that, in that room from the need to be humbled, which, as Dad pointed out last week, was a key characteristic of a citizen of the kingdom of God, namely humility, brokenness, a humble and contrite heart was a key characteristic of a citizen of the kingdom of God. Jesus gave them a chance here to see their sin, to be broken over their sin, to admit and confess that we are not humble. In fact, Lord, you are right about us. But what do they do? Well, verse 15 indicates the heart of 
pretty much everyone in there. It says, when one of those who were reclining at the table heard this. So in other words, they heard Jesus give this rebuke. They heard the rebuke. They heard Jesus say, if your heart is humble, then your love will look different. Your love will look different. You will love God and you will love people more than yourself. They heard Jesus say that only the humble will inherit the resurrection of the righteous. Only the humble will inherit the resurrection of the righteous. So this man says, blessed is everyone. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Like, what? There's the blank stare. Totally different subject. This guy totally whiffed. I don't understand why this guy said this, except for the fact that maybe he was just obliviously raising his glass like a drunken fool. Or, or he was saying, yes. Yes, every, blessed is everyone in this room, for we are the righteous. We are the righteous ones of Israel, the social elite. This man completely and utterly disregarded everything Jesus just said. Changed the subject, if you will, or began to debate with him. He, like probably most of the men in that room, when he heard what Jesus said, he began to recycle in his mind his social status. No, I'm, I'm a social elite here. Probably to recycle in his mind, no, I do a lot of good things. I do a lot of good things. I tithe a lot. I pray in public. Everyone sees it. They know I'm a good person. He remembered their, their bloodline to Abraham, and they considered themselves among the righteous. They knew the prophecies. They knew the prophecies. He probably had in mind Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, it talks about a grand banquet, a grand banquet that will take place in the kingdom that the Lord will prepare It'll be a God's banquet, and it'll be a lavish banquet, it says. And this is the ultimate banquet in the kingdom of God that the righteous will receive. And of course, everyone in that room believed it would be them at the banquet. Everyone in that room believed that they had earned their way, done enough things, been good enough to get a seat at that banquet. Them, like every other religion in the world, have put their trust fully in themselves fully in themselves. They've defined righteousness as obedience to the law. They've defined righteousness as looking good before men. They desired to earn a seat at the banquet, and they thought they had done it. They defined righteousness, listen to this, they defined righteousness by law-keeping and their acceptance among their peers. If the social elite accept me, I must be good in God's eyes. If the Pharisees accept me, I must be good in God's eyes. But they had totally, they had totally neglected to see what God calls righteous. What God calls righteous. In fact, God is standing right in front of them. God is standing right in front of them, and he is not accepting their social status he could care less about how they dress. He could care less about their good works, their good deeds, or their life as righteous. He doesn't see any of it like that. 
In fact, no matter how impressive anyone there or even in this building is to your peers or to your friends or your neighbors, God is not impressed with you or in your good deeds. Jesus is not impressed here. He, was, he is not impressed and he will not be impressed. In fact, all of our good deeds is like a bribery to the judge. That's the way God sees it. You broke God's law. I broke God's law. I stand before the judge and I slip him a $1 bill and I say, what do you think? That's your good deeds to him. Not only is it absolutely worthless, but it's a bribery and it's offensive. God is our salvation. Habakkuk 2.4 tells us this. This is God's definition of righteousness. Habakkuk 2.4 tells us this. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. That's the unrighteous person. Here's the contrast. But the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1, Paul repeats this in verse 17. He says, for in it, meaning the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, meaning it's received by faith and it produces a walk of faith. Okay, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, so it's received by faith and it produces a walk of faith. For as it is written, Paul repeats it, the righteous shall live by faith. The leaders had neglected this truth. They neglected this truth that the righteous live by faith. They neglected the truth of the scriptures that they had, that it is faith. It is faith, which is the humble. It is a humble and needy and dependent act of faith in God as your only hope of salvation. It is faith in his work. It is faith in his work to accomplish it through his Messiah. Period. It is God's righteousness that is offered. It is God's righteousness that is offered to us and it is received by faith. It is a foreign righteousness, meaning we have none of our own. We have none of our own. It must come from God. And so, therefore, no one gets into this lavish banquet without righteousness, and no one gets righteousness apart from faith in Christ. Complete and utter trust in Jesus. All he did on the cross, and all he said, and all he commands, all of it. You don't get to receive what he did and deny what he said. That is not trusting him. That is not trusting him. It is complete and utter trust in all that he did and all that he commands. See, they believed in themselves. They believed in themselves. Isn't that the message of Disney today? Just believe in yourself. It's the message of the world today. It's all around us. Just believe in yourself. And they believed they were right with God because of it. And the worst part of it was they were leading people astray. They were leading people to believe that they could earn God's favor. They could be righteous in their own works. And Jesus has something to say about this. Jesus always speaks up when false teachers speak up. When someone believes they are righteous in their own works, 
and they disregard the word of God, Jesus always has something to say. He doesn't stay quiet. He doesn't stay quiet. He is not passive. He doesn't just let them believe what they want to believe. He doesn't just let bygones be bygones, like you do you, I'll do me. We can just kind of agree to disagree. No, when he, when he is a, approached by false teaching, he does not remain quiet. He's not satisfied with letting false teachers defame and misrepresent God's word. Our Lord, our example, he has something to say. Meaning out of love, out of love for the one who believes he is good with God when he isn't, Jesus speaks up. And out of passion for God's glory, he will not keep quiet. May we be like him. May we be like him and not let our mouths remain shut when we see false teaching, when we hear of false teachers, when we see a friend who claims to know Christ and believes he's right with God when he isn't, may we speak up. Jesus is going to be a little bit more direct now. He's going to be a little bit more in his face with this parable now. Let us pay attention to the way Jesus responds to self-righteous religion or evil unbelief. Point one. Subpoint one. Now, now is the time to dine in fellowship with God. Now is the time to dine and fellowship with God. So Luke starts off by, letting, by saying, but here. And before Jesus speaks, Luke's saying, but he said, meaning everything Jesus is about to say is in complete contrast to what this man just said. Like, in other words, Jesus is saying, on the contrary, dear friend. On the contrary. He, he says in verse 16, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. So right off the bat, the idea is that there's a man, he's giving a big dinner, meaning he wanted to paint the picture that this was a lavish banquet. This man was a prominent figure. You can't give a lavish banquet unless you have lots of money. And so this man was a very prominent figure. He had a high value of high importance, so everyone would want to come to this banquet. There's no one in the right mind who would not want to come and be a part of this elite social dinner. It says he invited many, which is interesting to me because we have, here we have Jesus in a room at a prominent luncheon giving another parable about another prominent luncheon, but a bigger luncheon, a bigger banquet, much, much bigger. The bigger the banquet, the more honorable the invite. The bigger the banquet, the more honorable the invite, and it says that he invited many. Now, when it came to big weddings or big banquets in the ancient world, when a, when a big dinner like this would take place, there would be an initial invite that goes out, perhaps weeks in advance, months in advance, and they would have a day lined up, but they wouldn't know the time. They wouldn't know, they wouldn't know the time because they don't have a Publix or a Kroger's in a market to just go get the food and they don't have a, a nice kitchen to cook it all up in and know what time to have it all ready. They don't know what time it's going to be ready. They just know it's going to be on this day. So be ready for a second invite. Be ready for a second invite that will let you know that the dinner is now ready and it's time to come and fellowship. 
Okay? So they needed to be ready for that second invitation. And generally, people would be very excited about a banquet like this. They, they would block off the day. They would recognize the day, and they would block off the day. They would schedule nothing that day, and they would be ready, prepared, dressed for this second invitation. An invitation would let them know that it was time or that the dinner was at hand. And so we see in verse 17 that the dinner hour had come. And so what happens is the master sends a servant out and to go or say or proclaim this second invitation. He says, come, everything is ready now. Everything is ready now. Jesus is insinuating that now is the time, not just future, not just some distant heavenly bliss, but now is the time to fellowship with God because now the Messiah is here. Now is the time to fellowship with God because now the Messiah is here. Here, This dinner is to be understood as fellowship with God. Fellowship, intimate bread-breaking, not just in the future, but now. So Jesus is saying, basically, listen up, Mr. Pharisee. Listen up, Mr. Pharisee. You have received the invite from all the prophets of old. You had the first invite. You knew the hour was coming, and you should have been waiting, dressed, ready. You should have been ready to go. You should have prioritized your life. But now my servant has told you the time is now. The kingdom is in your midst. The king is here. And the question is, Mr. Pharisee, what will you do with the invitation? What will you do with the invitation? What will you do with the invitation to come and receive your Messiah and dine with your Creator? The call of gospel had come. The call of the gospel had come. Israel, specifically this generation, was the ones invited. They were the ones invited, and the servants may be represented by John the Baptist, maybe even Jesus or his disciples that had gone out from city to city and town to town proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. They'd been going around everywhere proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, calling all of Israel, all of those who were invited, and the leaders to repent, to turn from their self-righteousness, to turn from their law-keeping, self-righteous religion and receive their Messiah, receive their King, and receive God's salvation for them. That was the call. That was the, that was the invite. And so the second point today is this. Dull hearts produce silly excuses. Dull hearts produce silly excuses. Jesus continues, and he tells us. He tells us what Israel, may we learn from them, what Israel does with the invitation. In verse 18, he says, But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Now, if you know anything about buying land, you know that you look at it before you buy it. This was, this was a ridiculous excuse. 
The fact that he had to go look at it again tells us that he did not prioritize the day at all. Same thing in verse 19. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Same thing. You don't buy oxen without checking them out first. Because every indication that this man was very wealthy, he had a lot of money, he knew what he was doing, he probably checked the oxen out already. Why do you need to check them out again? This is, this is silly. This is silly. Verse 20, another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. And now, you might be thinking, well, that's a reasonable excuse. That one makes sense. But not to the people listening. Women had almost no value in the ancient Israel. They had almost no value. There was no wife that could tell you what to do, where to go, where to be. There was none of that. There was no common uh, courtesy of the husband to consider the wife. If he wanted to go, he would go, and she would come. She probably would want to come. It was a big social dinner. And so these are lame excuses. These are lame excuses. And the thing is, is everyone listening would have known it. Everyone listening would have known it. They were weak excuses. They are the social equivalent of, I got to wash my hair tonight. I got to wash my hair tonight. I can't make it. It would have been viewed as a very massive slap in the face of the person who invited them. The man throwing the banquet. And so if you remember, there was many invites, but they're all kind of summed up in these three excuses. They're all kind of just summed up in these three excuses. So the party's getting smaller, as it seems, by the minute. One by one, people are, the servant's going and proclaiming, and one by one saying, please consider me excused. Please consider me excused. One by one, they're all just dropping out, and it looks like this party is going to be a no-show. This man who threw a lavish banquet was very generous to invite all of these people and put on such an amazing dinner for these people. They're all saying, can't make it. These excuses are really, Jesus' point here is that they're they're the cares of this world. That the cares of this world, that the cares of life, like the thorny soil from Luke 8, It is a seed that sprouts up and hears, but then is caught up in the cares of this life, the busyness of this life. The first man, the first man tosses the invitation aside for land. That's kind of money future. Okay, the second for, for cattle or oxen. That's money now. Okay, and then the third for a wife. This is for just prominent, this is the most prominent relationships. So people are just casting the invitation aside for possessions and relationships. Possessions and what people think. Possessions and what my friends think. Possessions and what my wife thinks. Possessions and what my friends might think. And so on and so on. And so all of these are good things. right? There's nothing wrong with land. There's nothing wrong with cattle. There's especially nothing wrong with a wife. They are gifts from God. They're wonderful things. And so the issue here is not what people are they're giving attention to. The issue is the place of importance they had elevated them to. The issue is that they have made these good things ultimate things. Each of them had an invite to the banquet. Each of them said yes, but none of them cared to prioritize their life in any way that showed any excitement for the banquet. 
so focused on their stuff and their relationships, they treated the banquet with perfect indifference. This lavish, generous, loving banquet, they, they treated it with perfect indifference. And so these excuses, these excuses, which is all they are, each one of them, in fact, by everyone listening, they would have called out these excuses. Every Pharisee in there had thrown a party, and if they had heard these excuses, they would have been really mad. And so they're listening to these. They, all of them would have been angry with the people in the story, kind of empathizing with the man throwing the party. And yet it is exactly the reason for which they have turned away from their Messiah. I'm reminded of 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan approaches David, and he says that there was a man with a sheep. It was his prized sheep. It was his pet. And another man, a traveler, comes in. And he takes that sheep and he slaughters it. And David, as shepherd, gets so angry. gets so angry with him that he says, tell me who this man is. I will kill him myself. And Nathan says, David, you are the man. You are the man. You took Uriah's wife. You are the man and that is exactly what Jesus is saying to these people. Who They're, they're angry. They're, they're saying, how dare these people give such a lame excuse to such a generous offer? Jesus is saying, you are the man. Their hearts for God were dull. Their hearts for God were dull. Their passion for God, their passion for his kingdom, for his rule, for him to reign over them, their hearts were far, far, far away. And Jesus is calling them out. What had taken over their hearts? What had taken over their hearts is passion for possessions, passion for beneficial relationships, relationships that can lift me up, passions essentially for their own kingdom. See, these leaders, they knew the prophecies and they wanted the kingdom, but they just wanted nothing to do with the king of the kingdom. They wanted a seat at the table. They just didn't want to be with the host of the table. The one who was going to be honored at that table. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And these good things became ultimate things, which even for us can easily dull the heart from desiring any godly fellowship. When good things in our life become ultimate things, they dull the heart to fellowship with the one who made you. I love the way John Piper puts it. He says this. He says, for all the ill, for all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary to love of God is not his enemies, but his gifts. The greatest, the greatest adversary to love of God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of this earth. For when these replace appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable, and it's almost incurable. End quote. The greatest enemy you have, the greatest enemy any one of us has, is absolutely anything that keeps you from God. That keeps you 
from desiring, loving, and treasuring, and worshiping God alone. Anything, and I mean anything, that keeps you from that is your enemy. For Israel, for Israel and many, many who are wealthy, even in this room maybe, or anyone who wants to be wealthy, it is rarely the poison of easily recognizable sin, but, it is, but the breadcrumbs, it's just little breadcrumbs of everyday busyness of life that keeps us from fellowshipping with God. It keeps our bellies just full enough to have no appetite for God. You go the whole day, never commune with him, never talk to him, never desire him, never desire to talk about him. Jesus was in their midst. The king was in their midst, and he was offering Israel fellowship with God. Fellowship with the creator, the one who made everything. Fellowship with him, to be kin with him. Family with God Almighty, to dine with him and his son. This is what he offers you. This is what he offers me through the death and resurrection of his son. It's purchased for, for us through him. What will we do with the invitation? What will you do with the invitation to dine with God? They said, they said, no, thank you. They said, I'm too busy. They said, I'm too, I have too much going on in my life. I have coin to add to coin. I have cattle to add to cattle. I have peers to make happy. I have a wife to make happy. I have a husband to make happy. I have relationships to maintain. And I'm telling you, they are excuses, and God will not accept them. God will not accept them. This is not acceptable to God but because it is a very dark exchange. It is a dark exchange to exchange the creator for the creation. And there is no excuse that God will accept for high treason, which is exactly what it is. It is high treason against the king. And God, God does not take it lightly. In fact, in fact, we see here that he gets angry. God gets angry. Okay, point number three is this, is that God accepts no excuses. God is holiness. Listen, God is so holy. He's so holy. He's so righteous. He cannot accept any excuses. He hates indifference towards him. But God is sovereign. He, he will accomplish his purposes. He will accomplish his purposes so God accepts no excuses. He hates indifference, but will accomplish his purposes. So the slave comes back and reports to the master, and the master gets really angry, and he sends them out at once to go into the streets and the lanes of the city and to bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the master, he tells the master, what you've commanded has been done, and yet there is still room. And so we see the master is angry. And the word here is orgizo, which means to be provoked to wrath. Provoked to wrath. That is strong language here, and Jesus means it to be. 
Jesus is not giving us his opinion of how God feels about this kind of exchange. He is God in the flesh, and he's telling us how God feels, hard, cold facts. God hates any act of love or adores, uh, any act that loves or adores anything more than him because God is passionate for his own glory. In his love for us, he is passionate for his namesake. So Jesus tells us rightly that the master is wrathful. And he gives instructions to the, to the servant to go into the city. This is to be understood as the, within the city walls of Jerusalem. So this is within Israel. And go get the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. Where have we heard that before? Remember last week. Last week, this is the crowd that Jesus said they should have invited. This is the crowd they should have invited. These are the remnant people of Israel. These are the people that God invites into his banquet. The remnant people of Israel who are humble, they are broken. And hear me when I say this, they know they are not worthy to come in. That's the distinction. They know they're unworthy. And this is exactly who will get in. It is the unworthy. It is those who see. It is those who recognize that they are sinful before a holy God and that they do not deserve a seat at the table. They're the ones who will get one, though. It is the ones who know that they don't deserve it. And it must be a gift. It must be offered to them by the king. It is them who will get one. In fact, the parable says they're already there. This is what Jesus has been doing all along. He's been inviting in, right? Remember from Luke 6, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is what he's been doing. He's been gathering those who are broken over their sin, needing a Savior. He's been gathering them all along. They're already there. And so this is where it gets real tricky for the Jew. Because now the master says, okay, go outside the city then. Let's go outside the city. Go out into the highways. Go along under the highways and along the hedges. And he says, compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. This is the Great Commission outside, the, outside of Israel. To go into the world and compel the Gentile. Compel the dogs, if you will. Now, a poor, lame, destitute Israelite was far better than a Gentile. The Gentile was heathen, pagan. Jesus saying, go get the heathen. Go get the heathen. Go get the wretched. Go get the dogs of the world. And he says, compel them. He says to compel them. This is, this is the great gospel call. This is the great gospel call. This is, and this word compel, it means to urge upon. It means urge upon, like press into them. It kind of, kind of takes with it the idea of forcing them, but, but this is not a dragging and screaming, but this is not a very soft message either. This is a don't take no for an answer. It kind of changes the way you view sharing the gospel, doesn't it? With some urgency, maybe a sense of urgency, right? The master of the house is with urgency sending out servants to go and compel the Gentile and all the unbelievers to come and dine with God. 
Come and be reconciled to God. Have fellowship with God. And that's you. That's you. This, this is me. Ephesians 12 talks about this. I'm sorry, Ephesians 2.12 says that you were once not a part of the commonwealth of Israel. You were part, once not a part of the commonwealth of Israel. You were not a part of the promises to Israel. You were not a part of the covenant to Israel. But you who were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. What a glorious truth. What a glorious truth. Jesus is prophesying here that this is what's going to take place. And this wasn't a new prophecy. They should have gotten this from Isaiah 25 as well. That the nations would be brought in. And listen to these last words. So that my house may be filled. This is strong language also. This is strong language also, meaning that God's banquet, God's banquet will not have one empty seat. There is no seat at God's banquet that will not be filled. In fact, every seat has a name tag in front of it, and every seat will be filled with that person. God will do it. God will do it. He will fill every chair, and he will use you to do it. He will use you to go and compel them to come and sit and fellowship and dine with God, which means that we have a message. We have a message to give. And point four is this message. No fellowship now means no fellowship later. No fellowship now means no fellowship later. Jesus finishes with this, speaking as the master in his wrath, but I kind of picture him just gazing into the eyes of his audience right now. He's kind of drawing his attention to them a little bit more specifically as he ends this message because he says, for I tell you. That means, listen up. None of those men who were invited shall taste my dinner. None of the Israel generation that desires to stuff and relationships over God, none of that generation will taste his dinner. You, sir, you, sir, who raised your glass, you, the leaders and dignitaries of Israel, you, will, you who have the law and the prophets and you lead people astray, you believe yourself to be righteous apart from the saving work of God, you will never eat bread in my kingdom. It's my dinner, Jesus says. I'm the one honored at this dinner, and you won't be there. You won't be there. You have spurned the invitation. You've spurned the invitation. You disregard the call of the gospel. You've, you've completely disregarded the call to repent and to believe and trust in me and have fellowship with me. You want your stuff? You can have it. You can have it. You've exchanged fellowship with God today for created things today. So you'll never have fellowship with God and his kingdom. Jesus offers each of us the same offer. The message remains the same. The gospel call is no different. It is the kingdom. 
It is the kingdom offered to you. It is not, again, we've talked about this before, the, the offer is not just a free pass out of hell into paradise. That's it, and that's all. The offer to you is salvation from hell and fellowship with God. God is the gospel. God is the gospel. He's the good news. You get him. You get fellowship with him. You get to relate to him, talk to him, love him, as you were made to do. You're, you're free to deny all the world. Like You're not enslaved to it anymore. The chains are broken, and you can be free to love God as you were created to do. That's the offer. That's the kingdom. What will you do with the invitation? What will you do with the invitation? What excuses are keeping you? From fellowship with your creator. Intimate fellowship with the one who made you. What keep what excuses? We know God will not accept them. Jesus warns them in us none, no excuses will be accepted. For those of us who have received it. For those of us who have seen our brokenness, it's real, and we've been compelled. We've been compelled to come in, to dine in fellowship with God. I believe that God is, through his word today, speaking. That's most of us in the room. So what does God want you to know? What does God want you to know? I mean, personally, what is God revealing to you today about your heart that is keeping you from fully fully participating in fellowship with God that you currently have. Fellowship that's been granted to you. I want us to think just for a moment about the, what's going on in Ukraine. Think about the Ukrainians who are they're willing to sacrifice career, celebrity. They're willing to sacrifice athletes in their athletic careers. They're, they're, they're putting on the suit. They're grabbing the guns. They're going to war for land and country. True patriots to their kingdom. They're willing to sacrifice. Look at how many Americans are willing to sacrifice for the sake of patriotism to this country. When you think of patriotism, what do you think of? You probably think of like, yeah, I believe red, white, and blue. Christian. This is not our country, not ultimately. This is not our country, not ultimately. Our, our first loyalty and priority and patriotism is to be to the kingdom, to the kingdom of God. We are to be kingdom patriots. Kingdom patriots are people sold out to God, sold out to his kingdom. The question is, is, what is it about this world? I mean, I'm talking to me here. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to everyone in this room. For you personally, what is keeping you or holding you or restraining you from that kind of patriotism? What are your excuses that you still kind of hold on to? That you still kind of cling to? What, what promises of God are you not quite believing? That's the issue. Look at Hebrews 11. I was reading it this week. 
I was reading it this week, and where the author is giving us example after example after example of men and women who lived by faith. They lived by faith. They lived by faith in God's promises for what? If you read it, it's interesting. It's for a better kingdom. It was for a better kingdom. And so by faith, they made sacrifice after sacrifice, not to earn this kingdom, but because they were already citizens of that better kingdom. They were patriots of that better kingdom, and that required sacrifice, and they gladly made it. They gladly made it. It says Abraham left his country. He left his, he left his country, his comfort zone, because God told him to. He obeyed by faith, said to seek a better country, a heavenly country, it says. It says Moses, by faith, by faith, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose, he made choices. He chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God, then to have the treasures of Egypt. All the treasures of Egypt didn't amount to anything compared to being ill-treated with the people of God. Why? It says he considered the reproach of the Messiah as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He considered fellowship with God as greater treasures than all that Egypt could offer. And it says, for Moses was looking to the reward. He looked to the future kingdom where this Messiah would reign, and he said, worth it. Therefore, as Hebrews 12 12 says, in light of so many witnesses, in light of so many who have gone before us, in light of so many who have, through the test of time, have made sacrifice after sacrifice, have given up treasure after treasure of this world for the better treasure, which is Christ, may we, like them, both now and later, look to that kingdom. May we, like them, lay aside, it says here in Hebrews, lay aside every encumbrance. That's like a heavy weight that's on you. Every encumbrance and every sin that entangles you, so it's like wrapped around your feet so that you can't run. So you can picture this guy, he's got things heavy on him and his feet are tangled up and he can't run. These are all the good things. These are all the bad things, all of it, that weigh us down, like money, have to have more, career, got to climb the ladder, family, got to make sure that I don't do anything but focus on my family, my little kingdom, friends, peer pressure, land, home, anything. Paul says, consider them all rubbish. Cast them aside, lay them aside, and let us run, Hebrew says, with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, He says this in Hebrews, he continues, may we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The joy of what? Every seat filled. The kingdom of every seat filled. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He didn't care about the shame And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews calls us today to consider him and all who have gone before us and cast aside our entanglements. 
disown our allegiance to the world and seek, I mean like really seek, the greater city to come. And let us not lose heart because you will get tangled. As soon as you cast it off, there's another weight coming. Not lose heart. Just keep casting it off. Keep setting your eyes on Jesus. You cast off a weight today, next week another one's waiting on you. Cast that off too. Do not lose heart. Cast that one off too. Untangle the sin of next week too. Keep casting it off. Keep casting it off. Don't lose heart. But he says, keep running, running and running after Jesus and go and call others to forsake this world and to do the same. We've heard the message of Jesus today. You've heard the invite. Now, what will you do with it? It's time to obey. It's time to obey. On your handout, if you have it at the bottom, there's an opportunity for you to write out how you might just do that this week.